I found an old SD card while hunting. Its contents disturb me. Written by Mr. Pagan665. I enjoy hiking in our national park. The landscape, it's just beautiful. A green lawn in our gray city. However, due to my recent discovery, I'm a bit more scared from time to time while hiking in this woods. A couple of days prior to writing this, I took my usual route from the park's parking area and headed towards its other entry point. The park is relatively big, and it has a lot of things that can be seen. For example, there is a huge lake with a birdwatch tower, an army camp, a farm with cattle, and some old bunkers that are scattered through the park. Last week, I took the usual route that passes by the lake. At some point, I came across the usual crossroad, where the dirt path meets a more modern asphalt road that is made for the bikers and forestry department to use for navigating the forest. I continued on my right where, after a couple of meters, the asphalt road branches into two tracks. One dirt path going uphill, and around a small hill that is situated in the middle of the park. And the other is the fresh asphalt that goes around the lake back to the main parking lot. But before the branching, I noticed something that I haven't noticed for my time coming to this park. On my left, there is a small, barely visible path that led into the wooded tree line that surrounds the road. I stared at it and decided to approach it. And to my surprise, it was indeed a hidden path. It looked as if it was recently used. This is mainly due to the floral patches that were smudged and pressed as if someone had walked through here. But again, this is a national and public park and it's not a surprise for something like this to be discovered by someone else before me. As I walked the enclosed by trees and foliage path, I was led to a small opening where the road continued on my left and right. The left path had some old benches and monkey bars, and if you were to continue, there is a big circular opening with pine trees surrounding it. That's odd, I thought to myself. I've been hiking and exploring this park for nearly two years now, and I've never seen such a place. I took some time to capture some shots with my phone, and then spent some time just strolling around forgotten monkey bars and benches, taking some more pictures. And then I sat on one of the wooden benches and began scrolling through the pictures that I took so far. After some scrolling and deleting pictures, I was ready to leave the area and head to the other direction that I haven't explored yet. But as soon as I got up, my eyes caught a small black thing near the left foot of the bench. Upon closer inspection, I noticed it was an SD card, and even more surprising, it was an 8GB one. I always appreciate finding things that can store other things, such as USB flash drives, SD cards, or even old CDs that can be cleaned and repurposed. However, I cannot lie that I'm kind of a sucker for finding old stuff that may have something hidden inside them, and the pure thought of it excited me. 
but I know that not everything in this world is rosy and clean. I had heard stories before of USB flash drives that contained viruses and other dark secrets that no one should learn about. Now, I am aware of such risks and this is why whenever I find an old USB or anything that may contain information, I use an old laptop that I have in order to keep myself safe from anything dangerous. I took the SD card and decided to leave the park earlier that day. On my way back through the old foliage, my foot was caught on something causing me to fall to the ground. I grunted as I stood up and took a glimpse behind me, seeing the shiny padlock that emerged from these scattered leaves. I went over to it and with my feet, I managed to kick some of the foliage and saw that a metal hatch was hidden underneath them. Upon closer investigation, the hatch's lid seemed rusted and old compared to the padlock that was holding it shut. Behind the hatch, slightly deeper into and behind some young pine trees, there was an enormous pile of leaves and branches, and situated next to them was a small metal plaque which read the following description, NE73, Forest Street Apartment. Now, I'm aware of old structures being scattered around the forest, such as the bunkers previously mentioned. So, perhaps, uh, this was some form of shelter by the forestry department, or some old storage that in case of fire or something else, it could be used accordingly. I dismissed the whole thing, however. All I did was take some photos simply because it was another find after all. When I came home, I immediately rushed to my room and took the old laptop out of my closet, plugged it in and let it turn on. Since it's about 5 years old, and probably infected with a couple of malware, it does take a couple of minutes to fully load. So meanwhile, I searched for an SE adapter and prepared myself a nice cup of warm coffee. The time had finally arrived. I sat on my desk, SD plugged in and loading. Before entering the folder, I was shocked at how much space this thing had left the bar indicating that the capacity was easily over half full. Now this was getting more interesting. I clicked on the icon and a massive camera folder came up. I opened the file and it was full with videos and camera footage. I opened the first picture and began scrolling through them, hoping to find some more information on who perhaps this camera belonged to. Most of the shots were of mountains, sea and other landscapes and some of them were portraits and close-ups of different people. They were of amazing quality. Really, the man who must have owned this camera had to be talented. After about 10 minutes of scrolling, I was near the end of the folder's contents. And this is where things became scary. I reached a strange picture of a man in camel clothes and a cap entering the very same spot that I had entered today. I only managed to recognize the spot by the asphalt road and the surrounding landscape. It seems the picture was taken from afar, and some foliage covering the lens indicate that perhaps the photographer was hidden somewhere. The next pictures were of the same spot, but this time the man exiting the area. The photographer tried to take some closer pictures of his face, but it was barely visible. He seemed quite bulky and had a short black beard, but the rest of his facial expressions were hidden from his soldier cap and black sunglasses. 
The following images, however, were more disturbing. There were shots of the very same path that I took today, and even more strange some close-up pictures of the hatch that I had tripped on. Although, so far, things seemed quite strange and odd, it wasn't until the video that began playing after I pressed next. My so far, I had skipped any video that was in the folder, but thinking that it might have to do with the hatch, I let it play. The video showed the photographer with a bolt cutter cutting the padlock and opening the hatch. As soon as he did, I saw him immediately cursing and covering his mouth with his arm as if a smell hit him immediately. While turning around to pick the camera up for a moment, I saw his face. I immediately paused the video and I took a good look at him. Why do I have this strange feeling that I've seen him before? He had long brown hair, wore a dark gray beanie. He had a goatee beard and a bush mustache and a piercing in his right ear. I screenshotted it and kept it until the video ended. I thought about making a reverse image search afterwards or something like that. Maybe the post was in some photography groups that I'm a part of. Maybe somebody could identify him. But I'm sure that I did see his face somewhere. The video resumed and the man picked up his camera and began climbing the ladder, descending into the hole. The camera was shaking and blurred as it wasn't adjusted to the darkness. The man began cursing and breathing heavily, meanwhile trying to keep the camera in his hands while holding the ladder. His steps finally met the ground, and they echoed in the tight space. He turned to point to something, but as soon as his flash made contact, he screamed in shock. Now to me, I only saw a dark smudge on what I presumably thought it was the floor, but to him, it must have been something horrifying. I was very creeped out by the situation. I was hearing his voice trembling with fear and the camera shook so much that it was nauseating to watch. I heard his vomit echo in the darkness and the camera kept going in and out of focus. The man began sobbing. I almost wanted to close the video and just delete the entire folder, but something was off about what I was watching. After about two minutes of indescribable content, he tried adjusting the camera to finally get a glimpse on what he was seeing. Okay, Anthony. Okay, keep it cool. It's fine. Just take some pictures and get out. I heard his trembling voice through my speakers. The sensation was dreadful. As the uneasiness began crippling over me, more than five minutes ago, I was watching beautiful scenery and landscape pictures, and all of a sudden, I was hit with this thing. Some form of horror or found footage mystery. The man I now know as Anthony finally adjusted his camera to a blurry focus to a clearer view. The camera was facing his shoes and then slowly panned the direction of what he was staring at this whole time. My stomach began to turn, and I remember my heart beginning to beat from anxiety as the view footage became more and more clear. And despite his shaking hands making the video nauseating, I could very well see a shape of a body wrapped in some form of a garbage bag and tied with duct tape placed on the concrete floor next to an old wooden table. 
Near the body, there were some leftover rolls of the very same tape, along with dark spots on the concrete floor, presumably blood. Anthony began to approach the body, and this is where my heart began to beat even faster. The whole situation was unnerving. Having a camera with a flashlight only pointed to something so morbid and even worse. Going near was the perfect recipe for a horror cliché. I expected the body to jump or something, but that never happened. What did happen, however, was something else entirely. The sobbing became more clear, but something echoed in his voice through them. A name, I thought, but initially I dismissed it. However, when Anthony ripped the bag where the head must have been, I froze. An almost decaying face of a young woman was visible. Her lips were blue and cracked, her skin pale and rotting in places near the eyes and mouth. Her once red hair must have flown wildly in the air, only to be encapsulated in decay and a plastic bag placed in a forgotten bunker underground. The man began sobbing more and more repeating the name, finally this time more loudly. Martha, oh Martha, God please help me. Anthony began sniffing as if he was getting his mind back on track. He began ascending the ladder, and as he left the hatch, a grumpy voice was heard from the left, as if somebody yelled at him to stop. But Anthony began running. In the final minutes of the video, Anthony was shown facing the camera and fumbling before the video finally ends. And for a brief moment, I saw the monkey bars, the very same ones that I saw earlier today where I found the SD card. After the horrific video was over, I removed the SD card and sat back staring at the monitor, letting all things I saw sink in. Maybe after an hour before writing this, I had searched his face using the screenshot that I made while watching the video and used his name and other tags and to my surprise, I did find out something. Now it was much more clear why I thought I had saw his face before. There was a clip from a news broadcast about maybe less than a month ago showing his name and face. Anthony Lee, a photographer that was currently missing. His last whereabouts were in St. Thomas National Park. Police are currently investigating any leads. Further on the topic, his fiancée, Martha Lee, is still missing for the past month now. No whereabouts of her have come to the surface. I plan to go to the police later this day, showing them the SD card that I found, in hopes to help catch the horrible person behind all of these crimes. But before I do, I'm planning to copy the data. I mean, who knows? Maybe there's something else that I didn't notice before. Furthermore, I haven't seen any more about the couple or who they are, as my research wasn't very extensive. But I might post some updates if I learn anything in the future. I'm still shaken from this whole deal, however, but somewhat, and I'm glad that I came upon this, because maybe, at least now these two poor souls may have a chance of hope for resting in peace, as they should.
I'm a monster seeking peace. I'm not sure I'll find it. Written by Mr. Mills, 45. Hey everyone, this is part 6 of I'm a monster created by the government to hunt other monsters. If you want to listen to the first 5 parts, they'll be linked in the top of the description below. Enjoy everyone. Several months had passed since John and I had dealt significant damage to the agency. And because of that very fact, life has become far less eventful. Well, I use that term loosely. I still hunt and kill other cryptids, mainly for food or to protect innocents. Those who pose a threat to humanity and the well-being of societies. And now, John and I have a new ally. The Wendigo that I had freed as a part of a deal and promise that I made. Her name is now Arya. She turned out to actually be female. From these small traces of memories that she still held from her days of being human, that's what she had told me. I tried to find out more, but she wasn't able to recall anything more of importance. I taught her the ways of using resistance and knowing when certain amounts of force were necessary at certain times. She had gotten the hang of it quite well. As for John, he became more comfortable being around Daria. Although at first, he was opposed to me freeing her, he soon learned there were more benefits than setbacks to doing so. She was a positive asset to have around, also adding a missing dynamic to our friendship. For those of you who may wonder what happened to the helicopter pilots, we let him go making sure to drop him off far away from the location that we were currently using as a home. Therefore, he couldn't go telling the agency where we were located. We haven't seen the agency since the last time that we were at Site-12. The helicopter that we flew here did possess a tracker, so I picked it up, carried it, and threw it into the sizable river after we had let the pilot go. It sank to the bottom immediately. Although the strong current did begin to pull it apart into smaller chunks, effectively destroying any chance of it being tracked. This indefinitely bought us the ability to have a more permanent place to stay at. The location John had taken us to was an abandoned spot towards the more undeveloped side of the city. We sat surrounded by forests and fields, cloaking us from most nearby public roads and transportation routes. John had known about this place when he was a child. He recounted tales of how his mother used to drag him here whenever she made appointments. That is, before they shut down. John even took his daughter here a few times before the tragedy of what had happened to her. He said, unlike with his mother, he actually enjoyed coming here with her and seeing the look of joy spread across her face. But now, the most of the surrounding area had been overtaken by nature over the span of nearly a decade. Nobody gave the structure a second glance. Although, I'm sure the sight of either me or Arya would be enough to send the average man running. One day in particular, I had taken Arya out with me to go hunting for a new supply of food. Mainly for John. He only had about four meals worth of sustenance left. He stayed behind in the spa in order to work on reinforcing any weak points that were left over. This time, far more confidence being alone due to him having an assault rifle he picked up off an agent that I had knocked out a while back during a confrontation at the cabin. John also had finally gotten rid of his lab coat, 
switching it out for an old black long sleeve sweater and pair of jeans that he had discovered while scouting around the spa. Since both Arya and I were around, John hasn't had to fire his rifle up to this point, meaning that there was still plenty of bullets left for him to use if he had to. The particular forest area around the spa had a much less flat terrain than the previous few that I had been during the past several months. Some hills were steep, so much so that bringing a human along wouldn't do much good anyway. Arya looked at me as we both scanned through the tree line, looking for any potential prey items. It was a subtle bonding experience for the two of us. The human, she stated, shifting away around a boulder. Why does he not fear you? I smiled, allowing my teeth to be shown as I crawled forward. Me did it first, and they always do. Dr. John is a good man, a friend to both of us. I promise that you can trust him. I assured her. After all, he hasn't shown that he is an ally so far, has he not? She tilted her deer skull to the left, seemingly trying to look away. I've killed so many of them. Came a loud whisper. So many humans. Do you think the rest could ever exist with you and I without conflict? I stopped for a second, my claws sinking slightly into the dirt beneath us as I contemplated my response. No, I said bluntly. There will most likely never be peace between a cryptid and man. Not completely. But neither is completely wrong or right in their assumption of the other. I've seen benevolence and evil in both. Arya stood, seemingly saddened but satisfied with my answer. I could tell that she felt the same thing deep down. But there was not much that could be done about it. How did you know that you hate them? She inquired, now looking me directly in the eyes. The humans. I don't hate them, but some, some are corrupted, I replied. Back before I found my path away from the agency, a cryptid who I had been sent to destroy murdered the men who were my comrades at the time and I was forced to watch. After which he told me that I needed to discover who I truly am, what I can do, why the humans in power try to hide our existence from the rest. He was correct with most of his assessment. The only true reason I ended him was because he was slaughtering innocents. Arya seemed stunned by my monologue, keeping her sunken eyes trained forward as we both took in the landscape around us. Then why did you... why did you rescue me? She asked. I took a couple of steps closer, letting the slight breeze in the forest pass between us. It was a good question. That much was true. Because now I see the truth. Monsters are made on the inside and not the out. You overcame your bloodlust, despite your instincts and what humanity claims you are. And you have shown that you can be different. That you have the will to overcome what you're supposed to be. And instead, act as you desire to be. Just as I overcame what the agency that created me to be a ruthless killing machine. You have overcome what humanity has painted you to be, a bloodthirsty monstrosity. Arya slightly backed up, not knowing how to respond. I stepped forward and let a claw rest on her shoulder, to which she seemed to be reassured by. 
and looking over my shoulder in what almost appeared to be shame. I still have very much to learn, Braun, she announced softly, shooting a glance toward the ground. We all do, I replied, both man and cryptid alike. It was when I looked past Arya, I caught a glimpse of something strange near one of the trees behind her. Something that looked as if it definitely didn't belong. Not out here. What is it, Bron? She asked me curiously, sniffing the air as I pointed towards the site. I did the same, now picking up the scent of what was rotting and decayed flesh. Be on your guard, I told Arya. We may not be alone. On all fours, I crawled across the terrain and followed the smell as well as the sight. Arya stayed close behind, keeping a watch behind us in the event of a sneak attack from someone or something. Even though I already had an idea to the answer, as I got closer to the source of the smell, it became obvious what was creating the aroma. A body. That of a dead woman. Human. She had been there for what looked to be a couple of days, due to the way that her flesh was deteriorated. I moved to the side so Arya could see the body as well. Neither of us being disgusted, but rather intrigued. This could mean a potential cryptid was out there with us. Arya was already one step ahead and out, keeping her wits about her. The corpse was laid up against a tree, strands of her hair still falling from her rotting scalp. Her clothes were torn and wrapped, along with multiple remnants of what looked to be pierced and gash wounds in her arms and chest. Her eyes had been completely separated from her sockets, leaving nothing but two empty and fleshy holes. There's competition in these woods, Arya snarled, getting into a more combative stance. No, I told her. This was more than likely a human or something even more intelligent. What makes you so sure, Bron? She said, turning her dearest skull to glance at me. I've encountered many beings throughout the years, most of which consume their kills just like us. There have been expectations, but this seems like pure malice. Nothing more than a warning or a trophy designed to strike fear into the hearts of those who come across it. We should find whatever has done this and put a stop to it, she snarled, before it attacks us first. Precisely, I responded. Perhaps we've stumbled upon unwelcome territory. Something that saw us at home and no longer wants us here. Arya and I continued to search the forest, going up and down hills, running past ponds and through lines of bushes. For a while, it seemed as if nothing was there. Whatever had done that to the unfortunate lady was now long gone. We were soon about to give up until we heard a scream. A truly deafening shriek of pure terror and desperation, one that couldn't be faked or feigned. It came from someone in trouble, someone who was in dire need for help. Both of us stopped. I was the first to stand and quickly pinpoint the source of the wailing. This way, I motioned for Arya to follow me east. Soon enough, more voices could be heard, mumbling on and on about something, something clearly important. If it were two humans out here instead of Arya and I, then this mysterious screaming woman would more than likely have not gotten any help. Her screams wouldn't have been picked up by the ears of just a man. 
Maria and I came upon a makeshift campsite only about 12 meters and beyond us. A circle of tents all set up neatly with a blazing fire in the middle, the flames being well over 5 feet high. Around the fire stood 12 humans, a mixture of both male and female individuals, all dressed in black robes. Above the flames were what appeared to be a metallic slab, big enough to lay multiple humans down on, and from all the charred skin and tissue left over on its surface, it was apparent that that was the horrific purpose of it. Immediately, Arya stepped back, holding her claws up in front of her face, as she tried to look elsewhere. Fire. It was the fire that bothered her. Fire is one of the main weaknesses a Wendigo has, most of which fear it deeply, especially when it's in high volume like this. I myself didn't have much to worry about. I was extremely resistant to high and low temperatures, and fire has never truly bothered me, even when the flames have come into contact with my skin. No, no, Arya hissed. No fire, please no fire. I turned around, seeing the discomfort in her expression. I know what fire does to you, but you have to overcome your fear. We need to find out what they're up to. I said quietly, doing my best to calm her down. More screams interrupted us, and I turned back to the campsite. Two of the black-robed people were dragging a young woman toward the fire. She only seemed to have just about hit her adult years. They stopped dragging her just feet from the blaze. One of the bigger black-robed people stepped out from the circle and into the middle, raising his hands into the air as the woman begged for mercy. Please, I'll get out of here and never come back. I promise. Ain't nobody gonna ever know what I saw, she pleaded, looking up at the man as tears formed in her eyes. Speaking of the man, his eyes were a color of blue similar to that of my skin, a dark midnight blue. His brown hair was long enough to reach his waist. A thick, unkempt and curly beard had formed around his face, obscuring his cheeks, chin, and most of his neck. He looked down toward the young woman, anger seething in his eyes. Even through the material of his robe, I could tell that he possessed quite a lot of muscle mass. His shoulders were broad, his legs were girthy, and his facial structure appeared quite chiseled underneath that poorly groomed beard. The young woman herself possessed short black hair, only reaching to about her shoulders. Her entire consisted of ripped up jeans and a red and white square patterned shirt, and black leather boots that were covered in dirt and mud. This woman here has seen us, knows of us, what it is we look and sound like. To all of you, my brothers and sisters, let her be yet another example of what happens when outsiders come lurking where they do not belong said the ungroomed leader. The long-haired man waved a finger at the two black-robed people who dragged the young woman. They tightened their grip and began to drag her once more, preparing to throw her onto the metallic slab above the flames. Without thinking, I dropped to all fours and charged into the small crowd, now revealing myself and giving away the element of surprise. To my shock, none of the black-robed people scattered or ran, they simply fell to their knees, holding their hands together as they tried to not look at me directly in the eye. All except for one, the long-haired man. You will leave the woman be, I growled, burying my teeth and waving my claws around. 
The black-robed people all stood back up and slightly separated, creating an opening in the circle. The long-haired man took a few steps back, seemingly not afraid of me, but also not foolish enough to physically challenge me, which would be his death. Take the girl, get her out of here and back to the chapel. I'll keep the self-righteous freak distracted. I grabbed the bearded man by the shoulder and lifted him up to eye level. He kicked and resisted, but refused to play her bag. The last man who uttered that insult to me perished. And for what you have done to that dead woman and were about to do to that living one, it seems that you'll meet the same fate. I snarled, the glow of my eyes reflected in his. Oh, please, you won't have time to kill me when you'll be far too busy with Helena. He cackled, just before proceeding to whistle loudly in a specific pattern. A pattern meant to get the attention of someone or something. The black-robed people all grabbed the woman and lifted her up. She violently kicked and screamed as they restrained her, begging to be let go as she thrashed around in desperation. I could hear the sounds of rabid snapping and wood crunching coming from my right, but it wasn't just twigs or branches. No, entire trees were being ripped apart by the mass coming. Not to mention its scent. Its scent was horrendous, a combination of spoiled meat and black smog. Still keeping the man held tightly in the air, I turned my head back over to Arya, who was still cowering from the fire. I knew that she wanted to help, but her fear had seemingly gotten the best of her. But I had a plan in mind. Go after them and retrieve the woman, I shouted. I'll deal with this. Arya responded by leaping across the ground and into the trees, following the black-robed people as they attempted to run away with the still-screaming victim. They wouldn't have the slightest chance of outrunning her, so I was confident it wouldn't take long. She was much more comfortable performing the task that didn't involve being near the fire. I tossed the long-haired man to the side. He simply continued laughing as he slammed into one of the trees not far in front of us and fell onto the ground. Dirt finding its way into his beard and hair as he groaned from the pain of the impact. Near scum, I remarked to him. Killing innocents all while you preach of being great. You are no man who deserves the privilege of life. The long-haired man wiped some blood from his chin as he smiled, looking over to the entity that was on its way to me. And neither do you, monster, he shot back. I only see one monster here, I barked. Looking to my right, I spotted what could only be described as what appeared to be a mutated wolf-like cryptid, charging full speed at me. Its fur was a light yellow color, contrasting with the mostly green and brown palette of the forest. It's not two, but three eyes leaped out of a void like darkness of some sort, as if they were black holes within the creature's head. Its long pointed ears stood tall and perked up on the back of its head, giving the impression that it was ready for a fight. The most noticeable feature of all was just its sheer size. On all fours, the back of the canine reached up to just below my neck, mean that, standing up, it was nearly eight feet high, a truly massive creature. The monstrous canine, who I now knew was the Helena entity, the long-haired man had talked about. It stopped only about ten feet away from me. She exhaled, burying her jagged and deformed teeth at me as I watched air escape its way from her nostrils. 
She then shifted her gaze and pointed her snout at the long-haired man, as if waiting for orders on what to do. No different than the position I found myself in not long ago. The man stood and groaned, his back still heavily aching from the force that I had thrown him with. Now that his protection was here, he seemed much more content in his taunting expressions towards me. Kill the blue one, he commanded, pointing one of his scarred fingers at me. We can't let him destroy what we are trying to create. The long-haired man then turned and dashed off into the forest, but not in the direction of the other black-robed people. No, he went the opposite way, more than likely because he wanted to avoid the wrath of Arya, which I found odd considering his content at being thrown like a toy, or he was more than likely returning to the chapel that he had spoken of beforehand. I could hear screams of terror and more than likely pain in the direction the black-robed people had run off with the kidnapped woman, signaling that Arya had caught up with them in mere seconds, and was already getting to work, taking them down and rescuing their victim. I turned my attention back to Helena, attempting to try the less violent approach at first to calm the tension, something I had rarely ever done with cryptids in the past. This is not a battle you want to seek. You can be more than what he tells you that you are. You must believe me, I said, keeping my guard up as I spoke, not wanting to be attacked while not expecting it. Helena only continued to maliciously snarl at me, clearly not invested or interested in what it is I had to say. I still figured getting to her physiologically was worth a try, all things considered, but I still needed to defend myself as well as eat. I quickly realized that attempting to talk her down would only be a waste of my energy, so I had to do what I was more familiar with. I went on the offensive, reaching over and tearing the thickest branch that I could spot on the tree near me, following it up by lunging at Helena. Helena opened her jaws wide as I came within range and leaped forward at me with a lunge of her own. I swung the branch vertically in an uppercut-like motion colliding my arbitrary weapon with her neck area. The force of the impact caused her to be thrown onto her back. I seized the opportunity and I pounced onto her stomach. As I was wrestling and keeping the huge canine restrained, I heard Arya call out to me. Braun, I've got the woman. I'm coming to assist you, she bellowed, confirming that she had made quick work of the black-robed people although it was unclear at the moment whether or not she had killed them. No, get her back home, I shouted back, not even turning around to see Arya. Helena continued to howl and bark, attempting to shake me off of her. I slashed off one of her front legs with my claws, causing her to writhe in pain as a green, almost mucus-colored blood burst its way out through the stomp. At one point, Helena had turned over to the side, and onto her belly in an attempt to crush me with her weight. Little did she know, it was a pointless strategy, one that would only make matters worse for her. I lifted her up and tossed her behind me. Helena was sent crashing through multiple trees and sliding across the dirt from the ground, finally stopping when she impacted with a boulder sticking out from the ground, causing chunks of rock to fly in nearly every direction. I dropped down into all force and charged at her as she was recovering, leaping onto her with enough force to send us both crashing through the remaining mass of the boulder. We had tumbled down a hill behind the huge rock together, 
Helena still barking and snarling at an obnoxious volume during our chaotic descent. Grass, plants, and bushes were all trampled on our path. We both attempted to dig our way into the dirt for traction as we continued our fall, but we were going at a speed too great to completely latch ourselves on. We eventually hit the bottom. A shallow stream of water had splashed beneath us after our initial impact. Helena was the first to cover from the whole ordeal. She charged, slightly limping due to missing a leg, and proceeded to headbutt me as soon as I was on my feet, then quickly following it up by biting me in my right leg and viciously throwing me to her left. I roared from the sensation of her monstrous and deformed teeth sinking into my flesh as I collided with a hill of dirt. She charged once again. I reacted quickly and wrapped my claws around her snout when she was within range, preventing her from opening her mouth to bite me again. After which, I vertically maneuvered my arm while I still kept her snout firmly grasped, forcing her to have to look up. Once she did, I seized the opportunity and slashed my claws in a horizontal fashion across her throat. Blood exploded from her wounds. Her once powerful and dominant howl was now reduced to nothing but a gurgling whimper as she fell to the ground in a defeated manner. Helena lay there on the dirt, breathing heavily as she looked up at me, clearly in far too much agony to get back up and continue the fight. She went on to whimper and gurgle as her green blood leaped itself out from the gashes in her throat. I reached a claw over towards the back of her head, applied some force, and tore it completely off in order to speed up her death not wanting her to have to suffer any longer. Her movement ceased. Blood poured out from below her snout and her cries of pain had come to an end. I threw Helena's severed head behind me, not wanting to look into those black holes of eyes any longer. After which, I sniffed the air for a scent of the black-robed people. All I could pick up was the potent scent of iron. Now that the battle was over, it was clear to me what the source of that iron was and it wasn't the blood of Helena. These people had already proven themselves to be much worse than even most personality agency, especially the long-haired man, torturing and killing a woman for more than likely some petty religious reasoning, even coming close to doing it again. Who knows how many previous victims they've had. I had no issue if Arya ended up killing them, considering the heinous deeds they were up to when we had stumbled upon them. I should have put an end to the long-haired man when I had the chance. I hesitated for far too long and it cost me. But I was grateful that we had saved a life today. Although it was unfortunate we couldn't save the dead woman that we had discovered. Nonetheless, Ari and I were successful with keeping that woman from one of the worst fates known to humanity. Not that I could have the experience myself, but I've seen humans being burnt alive before mainly men back at the agency when we were out on a mission, and they encountered a cryptid with fire-related abilities. Their wretched and relentless screaming as their skin blisters and chars, their kicking and writhing as their bones boil underneath their flesh that's being slowly cooked. It's a sight only something truly evil could receive joy from, and I for sure did not. I did try one last time to detect the scent of the long-haired man, but to no avail. He had gotten too far out of range. For a man who seemed so content at the prospect of his own demise, he was also a colossal coward at the same time. 
Now I figured that I should get back to the spot with John, Arya, and the woman. Maya was no use staying out here and attracting the attention of whatever called this particular area of the forest home. Especially when I had a fresh body sitting at my feet. Although maybe this forest wasn't as populated with cryptids as I was imagining. Considering it, it seemed like nothing had come to devour the remains of the woman Arya and I had discovered. All the commotion and chaos had made me forget that I was hungry. And so I picked up the headless corpse of Helena and I brought it with me. Carrying her lifeless body over my left shoulder. Ignoring the stinging session of my leg left over from the bite that I had received during our battle. John would have to eat whatever was left over and share it with the woman. As not only was Helena's corpse mainly for Arya and I to feast upon, but it was highly unlikely John or the woman would be appetized by it anyway. Once I had arrived back at the spa, John had let me in. A fire was going toward the middle of the mostly vacant floor. The woman that we had saved sat next to it, an old ragged blanket wrapped around her as she stared at the flames. Arya was back towards the far corner of the building, not wanting to be near the fire. The woman instinctively leaned back when she saw me enter, still slightly frightened at my presence. You, you saved me, she said with a whimper, darting her eyes between Arya and I. But why? Don't things like you eat folks? Only the ones that are jerks, John joked, attempting to lighten the mood. I kept my distance from her while John heated her up some of his food, not wanting to scare her any further. She was already extremely shaken from whatever those people had done to her, but the important thing was that she was alive and she was here to tell the tale. It's okay, they won't hurt you. They're good, I promise. You see the blue guy over there? John asked rhetorically, punctuating by pointing at me. He saved my butt on multiple occasions. His name is Braun. We go back a decent bit. He's really down to earth for a cryptid that can lift a dang helicopter over his head. The woman raised a shaky hand into the air, keeping her gaze focused on the corpse of Helena I had hanging over my shoulder. Hey there, Braun. I'm, I'm Jenny. She greeted me weakly. Hello, I said bluntly, before motioning over to Arya. This is Arya, I followed up. She's a... When to go? Jenny finished. My pops used to tell me stories about Wendigos. They always kept my butt up in bed with nightmares. But you only seem vicious when you need to be. I can't believe you saved me from those evil people. John adjusted the blankets on the woman. They're both some powerful creatures, John announced. I've seen it firsthand. But if you leave them be, you have nothing to fear. They only want to protect you, I promise. Arya seemed even more pleased by what John had said than I did, considering it took him more time to trust and warm up to her. I signaled over to Arya to follow me outside, and my plan being for the two of us to feast out there while the woman calmed down and sat with John. I laid the corpse down on the overgrown lawn in the front, all sorts of weeds and plants sprouting up from what used to be a parking lot. Arya and I began to tear into our meal, even at one point getting in a petty tug of war over the deceased creature's small intestine. It wasn't long before we had reduced Helena down to a stack of blood-covered bones. Only the tiniest strings of flesh and tendons remained on her body. I stared off into the forest, 
the sun now starting to descend as evening approached. Arya turned to look at me. Splatters of green blood covered the snout of her deer skull. Uh, do you think we can trust her, Bronn? She asked, uh, still finishing off the last bit of meat from a bell net she had held in her claws. I'm not sure, but I'm certain that we can trust her far more than those depraved humans who were going to roast her alive. Arya dropped the bone, turning and looking away as she did so. I'm sorry that I didn't assist you at the fire. The fire, the fire, it's just... Arya said, sounding defeated. Hey, you did well, I said, turning my head to look at her. You saved Jenny. That was a great help in and of itself. If you can overcome your strongest bloodlust, you can overcome your greatest fear. I paused, using my right claw to scrape out a piece of flesh stuck between my teeth. Did you kill the ones in black? I inquired. Some, Arya responded. Does that anger you, Bronn? I remember what you said, the promise that I was made to keep. No, I immediately replied. They are corrupted even beyond the agency. They are far more monster than man. I told you that killing those who incite conflict with you or innocence are exceptions. I was close to killing the leader myself. They are merciless, cruel, and nothing short of evil. Maria pointed a fingernail towards my injured leg which had already begun to heal. The pain was still there, however, and I did my best to put it off and focused on the discussion at hand. You're bleeding, Braun, she announced. It'll heal soon enough, but thanks for your concern. Arya looked forward as if to contemplate and think of what she was going to say next. There is a silence between the two of us. Neither of us had much to say or talk about. It wasn't like my time with John. The two of us always usually had something on our minds that we wanted to speak about, but this was much different. Even outside, I could hear the mumbles of John and Jenny inside, but I purposefully ignored it. However, it appears whatever it was they were talking about was important, as John had stepped outside to get Arya and I's attention. Bron, Arya, he called to both of us. Oh, we've got to talk. The two of us swiftly followed John inside. He seemed to have a bit of haste in his step, clearly wanting to inform Arya and I of whatever it was as quickly as possible. Since he had finished cooking for both him and Jenny, we put the fire out for the sake of Arya, wanting to have her full attention on the conversation and not concentrating on avoiding the flames. Jenny, John said, inching his body closer to hers. Can you tell me what you told them? Jenny perked up and nodded. Seemingly in a much better mental state than earlier. She looked around the circle at the three of us, becoming more comfortable in our presence little by little. Mainly warming up to specifically me, as I'm the one she has spent the least amount of time with at this point. I live on a farm not far from here, she began. It was given to me after my pops had died. He was killed by something, something that was no man, far from it. Uh, did it look like me? Arya interjected. Nah, I would have known if it was a one ago. This thing, the thing that killed my pops. It was one ugly son of a gun. Uh, but that's not what I'm here to tell y'all. I'm sorry, John added. Uh, my daughter was taken from me. I know how it feels to lose someone. Jenny looked to John, letting a smile emerge on her face. I bet she was a wonderful little ball of sunshine, she told him. 
causing John to mimic her smile as if it were contagious. The black-robed people, I said. Tell us about them. They are now a threat to all of us, and we need to learn more. Jenny locked her hands together, letting out a heavy exhale before she spoke. I go into town often, you know, and get in supplies and such. A few days ago, I hauled myself over to the library. Just thought it would be dandy to have a good book around when I was finished with the farm work. Anyway, I saw this older gal towards the back. She looked real shaky and nervous, even frightened if I'm really pushing it. I tried to ask her what was the matter, but she said it would only make things worse if she blabbed. Blabbed about what? John asked, desperate for an answer. Something about the folks in the black robes. I don't know what they did at the time to scare her so bad. I offered to get the cops involved or to find her some help, but she begged for me not to do that. Said it would only stir the pot more and make her predicament even worse. Told me that she saw something she wasn't supposed to and that they were coming for her. The folks in the robes. Uh, did you try helping her regardless of her not desiring it? I questioned. Well, I very much did. But they came for her not too long after that. I tried to stop them while they carried a poor butt off into the backwoods of the building. And they took me too after I jumped in the max. Blindfolded and gagged the both of us. Said that if we told a soul, they would go get our folks too. Make them watch us die before they did the same to them. They dragged us out there and they killed the other gal. They were waiting a few days to cook me while I was still kicking and could feel it. The day came and they were going to do it too. And that's when you two strange but helpful friends came to my rescue. The four of us all shared glances, darting our gazes around the room just before John raised the question that we were all pondering about. So, they're a cult. Do you know what they worship or want? He quizzed. Jenny shook her head vigorously, indicating what John said was far from correct. Nah, there's something more evil than that, more complicated. Their goals are bigger than just some demon worship or ritual. I reckon they'll be back faster than you said the word cult, and in bigger numbers. I don't know much, but I heard a lot of voices while I was blindfolded. They definitely got more than just 13. The one with the long hair, I began. Do you know his name? I heard a few of those weirdos say something like Yubel, but I can't be too sure. Never really been too sharp with my memory ever since I got kicked by a cow when I was a little girl. Yubel. The name kept repeating itself in my head. I hadn't even known of his existence for more than several hours, yet his name still provoked a deep rage within me. The same feeling of rage only one other name had ever been able to bring to the surface. The four of us continued to converse throughout that evening. Eventually, nighttime came and John and Jenny went to sleep. I wasn't able to fall asleep and get the couple of hours I usually desired. And so I went outside and crawled up a nearby tree and simply looked out over the surrounding area. Arya came with and she sat at the bottom. And we exchanged a few looks as we both sifted through our own thoughts. I thought about a lot contemplated the events of my life over the past several months, wondered about where I would be if I had altered certain decisions. I do not regret most of my choices, especially leaving behind my former life as what amounted to being a cryptid mercenary. But one thing is for sure, I know that there would eventually come a day where I'm not able to keep myself hidden from the world anymore, and on that same day, everything I know would be in jeopardy. 
I thought back to when this all started, the day I encountered the yellow tentacle monster. Through all his monologuing and rambling, there was one sentence that stuck with me the most. You are the material of a king, but continue to play the role of a pawn. I shifted my thinking over to Yubel, pondering as to where he could potentially be or what he was doing. I knew that first encounter would not be the last. He would come back, the hatred in his eyes, the way that he told Helena to kill me without hesitation, as if I were nothing more than a nuisance. I didn't fear him now. I could tear his head from his neck without so much as grunting. Rather, I feared what he might do to John, or even Jenny, in order to get to me. Not to mention Helena. Yes, she was a bloodthirsty cryptid, but was in the same position I once was. And that's why I attempted to speak to her at first, to inform her that things did not have to stay that way. She didn't have to be Yubo's killing machine, as I was at the agencies. But in this world, not everyone could be saved. I wondered how many other humans or cryptids were out there, being used as nothing more than simple assassins, lied to and manipulated by those who held a power over them. I've said before, both man and cryptid can be monsters, and I hunt monsters. I inherited a cabin in the woods. Now something is hunting me. Written by Don Rosie. Now, I think it's important for me to go ahead and say that I've never believed in supernatural or urban legends. I found it hard to believe that most of them really exist. But a certain set of events has made me think otherwise. I have always loved to hunt. It's been one of my favorite activities since I was younger. When I got the news of my grandfather's death, I was sad and I got on a plane and flew to Arizona as quickly as I could. I was then informed that the cause of death was apparently self-inflicted. It threw me off because I remember my grandfather being a very happy-go-lucky person. I arrived in a small town in Arizona, a little ways from Navajo country, and I attended the funeral. It was a small funeral, about five to seven people, and consisted of family and friends that I recognized. I knew everyone except for one person. It was a man who was tall and dark, with eyes that had a certain otherworldly hunger to them. We made eye contact, and I felt him looking into my soul. He then whispered the words, Let me help you. I blinked and the man was gone. I was returned to reality by my mother calling out my name, but I didn't see her. I followed the sound of her voice to a room where a man at a desk was reading what I assumed to be my grandfather's will. My mother got $100,000 
and my grandfather's 2013 Nissan Altima. The benefits of being an only child, I guess. We knew my grandfather was a well-off man, but we never knew how well-off, and the surprises didn't stop there. I was caught off guard when I was named the new owner of my grandfather's luxurious log cabin in Hunter's Creek. After the reading of my grandfather's will, I soon called and I quit my job, and I was happy to start my new life away from the city in Arizona. Moving there wasn't really a hassle. I didn't have that much stuff, and the cabin was furnished with nicer furniture than I had ever seen before. I walked up to the bedroom and was overtaken by the beauty of it. It had a king bed with a walkout balcony separated by sliding glass doors. The sight from the balcony was absolutely breathtaking. I could see Hunter's Creek and the border of the forest edge. I knew I would love my new life here in Arizona after I saw that view. At 3.30 a.m., I was awoken by the most vivid dream I had experienced. No, it wasn't a dream. It was a nightmare. It was almost as if I was actually there. I now know that I was looking through the eyes of someone or something. It started in the forest pacing around. I would say about 300 feet from my cabin. I started moving towards it, stepping through the steep brush and up to a tree to get to the area, right to where it could see me sleep. I then woke up terrified. I began seeing branches shifting in the trees as the wind howled a sinister cry. I picked up my phone and used the flashlight to flash it in the last direction I saw movement. Nothing. I sighed. I must be imagining things because of the nightmare I just had. What scared me about the dream was how it felt so real. I stayed awake processing what had just happened. I don't know when, but I eventually fell back asleep. I woke up at around 8 a.m. in the morning, remembering what had happened. I don't know why, but I laughed at myself, because at the time, I thought I was getting worked up over nothing. I should have just left then, but I stayed. Not understanding how weird what had just happened was, the day was a blast. I swam, fished, and hiked a little bit, and had a giant fish fry that night. After stuffing my face with trout, I walked out to my balcony and soaked up the beauty of the land. After watching the sunset, I decided to call it a day. As soon as I got to my bed, I instantly thought about what happened the night before 
Now that it was a dark and quiet, I felt afraid, and I tried and tried, but I couldn't fall asleep, even though I was tired. Around one, I was beginning to fade out, but I got hit with an overwhelming amount of dread, and I was instantly wide awake. I popped out of bed with my flashlight and a baseball bat. Something was clawing at my door. It was followed by one of the worst sounds I've ever heard in my life. It sounded like a woman screaming, like she was getting murdered combined with this low, demonic growl. God, it scared the absolute crap out of me. Instead of trying to pursue the noise, I decided to stay in my room, with the door locked, hiding in my closet. As if things couldn't get worse, I started to hear something or someone fiddling with the door downstairs. I remembered last night and the dream that I had, and I thought to myself that this was going to be it. I guess that I passed out from fear because when I opened my eyes, it was morning. After the previous night's events, I decided that I needed to get some sort of defense, so I was going to get a gun. I got dressed and went about my morning routine and headed out the door. When I did, I noticed huge gashes left right out my cabin door. I try not to think too much about it, and I continued into town. I arrived at the gun store and purchased a 12-gauge shotgun and some buck rounds. The cashier then said to me, I noticed that you moved into the cabin around Hunter's Creek. The Navajo speak ill about that land. They say stuff out of the ordinary goes on out there. Everyone who goes hunting up that way goes missing. Later, only to be found mangled in inhuman ways. I told him that I had inherited it from my granddad. And then his face fell showing his sadness. He replied, I knew your granddaddy, son. We used to work together. We were really good friends before he just got up and left one day. He didn't tell me where he was going. He just handed in his notice and he left. He was acting extremely strange beforehand, talking about something out there in the woods, a creature who would cook and eat flesh. He said that he could smell the burning meat on a night, and then he would have horrible dreams. He started sleepwalking, and we would find him in random places out in the woods. He was an old man and so we just assumed the stress of those Navajo stories were taking its toll. So, no one really batted an eyelid when he laughed. We just assumed that he had called it quits and retired. He then pulled out a slip of paper, and he slid it over to me. We found this when we found his body. The note read, I wish to apologize to who may find me, but you must know, this was for the greater good. Every word, every whisper, 
Every single ounce of fear we create for it, it grows. If it grows, it will soon walk the earth. It must not walk this earth. It is in my head, and I can't unsee what I saw that night in the woods. With my death, it must find a new victim. It will no longer be me. However, if it happens to be you that he seeks out next, please don't make the mistake of others. What does he mean by it? I asked in a panicked, frantic voice. He means the skinwalker, son. I know you city folk don't believe in this kind of stuff, but please hear my words. Get out of that cabin while you still can. And with that, I took my newly purchased gun and shotgun shells and headed back to the house to ponder about what I had just heard. I want to say that I believed him. I want to say that I moved out as quick as I could, but I didn't. I didn't believe what the old man at the gun store was talking about, and I foolishly dismissed it. I wish I did because uh, night two was the worst and last night of my life. I woke up again at around 3.30 a.m. to walk downstairs and get a glass of water. I noticed how quiet it was in the night. Usually, there would be insects and frogs making noises, but this night was very quiet. That was when I heard it faintly, but close outside my cabin. I'll try my best to recount what happened. It sounded like the bleed of a goat and the yowl of a wild cat coming together to seem some broken in form. Quiet at first, it was accompanied by the clacking and scraping sound, getting closer and closer to my front door. I ducked under a window and focused my eyes to a figure illuminated by the moonlight hiding behind my car. What I saw next has been burned into my mind's eye, and I will never forget it. In the light, long, rotted fingers with thick, black claws curled the back of my car, and proceeded to reveal a thing that was about six feet tall, with long, deer-like legs, too skinny to support it that ended with small hooves. They seemed to float above the ground. The body looked semi-human, but a skeleton draped with rotted flesh, patches of mangled fur, and ribs protruding from its chest said otherwise. The smell was wretched, and I wanted to look away, but I was paralyzed with fear. I kept staring at the long, curled antlers, the wrapped and twisted body, and the long arms that hung loosely, with front claws that scraped the ground. 
but mostly the disturbing contorted mix of human and animal intertwined to make a face so, so haunting. I will remember vividly on my dying day, I'm sure of it. The eyes locked on me with its empty, rotted sockets meeting my eyes. And then I heard it quietly but all around me in my head. The horrid, howled, mangled words. Let me help you. Instantly, my front door shot open. And with that, I rushed back to my room, locking the door behind. I am now held up in my room, with that thing outside my door clawing, scraping, and laughing in that sinister and deep laugh, repeating the same phrase over and over and over again. Let me help you. It's breaking down my door. I don't have much time left. I've decided to post this in the last moments I have left on this earth in the hope that somebody will be able to stop this thing. If you're reading this, please send help. Someone in my house called the police to report hearing something crawling upstairs. I didn't call them. Written by Practitioner Jaden. Couple of nights ago, I was home alone, sitting by my kitchen counter, scrolling down a social media post aimlessly on my laptop. It was another one of my typically boring yet leisurely weekend nights. I live alone and I'm not into social life which is definitely why I'm still single in my early 30s. I checked the time. 10pm. Time to get ready for bed. When a sudden knock on my front door shocked me so much that I almost spilled my night tea onto my laptop. XXPD, we are here answering an emergency call from this residence. Please open the door. What the? But I didn't make an emergency call. Baffled, I quickly made it to the front door and pulled it open. Hey, uh, good evening, officers. I'm sorry, but you probably made a mistake. I didn't make an emergency call. I offered an awkward smile while speaking. The two officers outside, on the other hand, did not seem upset by my clarification at all. One of them introduced themselves. Hello ma'am, I am Officer Blythe and this is my partner, Officer Duchamp. Interestingly, they were wearing their name tags on their uniforms, so I got to see their full names. Rainer Blythe and Greg Duchamp. We received a call from this address. The female caller claimed to hear the crawling sound of a large animal on the second floor while she was in the living room. Do you live alone, ma'am? Is there another woman in your house? Officer Blythe went on to ask, his gaze moving away from my face to the stairs between my kitchen and living room, leading up to the unlit hallway on the second floor. 
No, I live alone and I am alone tonight. I really didn't hear anything abnormal. And I certainly didn't make her hear anyone make an emergency call. Are you sure that you have the right address? I was getting more and more confused. Well, is this your address? Yes, but I didn't know what to say. They had the right address. My discomfort was turning into a slight fear at that moment. Well, ma'am, it looks like we'll have to come in and have a check on things. You might have been entertaining some unwanted guests this whole evening. Officer Blaise said half-jokingly, exchanging a look with his partner that almost felt like a silent chuckle. Already disturbed, I did not appreciate their bordering, flippant attitude. But then I looked at the wild darkness behind them in front of my forlorn house, and somehow told myself that maybe to have these policemen do a check for me wouldn't be the worst idea. Relax, ma'am. We're pretty sure that it'll turn out to be nothing. Maybe the caller herself had offered the wrong address. We'll just take a quick look to confirm everything is okay and move on. Officer Duchamp finally spoke, taking a large step forward, inviting himself inside my doorway, forcing me to step aside. Officer Blythe followed suit, naturally. They went straight for the second floor, and I turned on all the lights for them. They checked everything, even used their flashlights to look under the beds and outside of the windows. After finding nothing, they laughed. From my porch, I watched their figures dissolve into the dark, realizing that I did not see a police car. Maybe they had parked somewhere else nearby, but the thing is, I did not go on to hear any engine starting or see any headlights appearing in the vicinity either. A chilling wind reminded me to go back inside. I returned to my laptop, not knowing what to make of this incident. I was more than just weirded out. I was somehow deeply disturbed. Something was not right here. The contents of the alleged emergency call itself was already creepy enough, even without finding anything wrong in my house. Not to mention the fact that the police officers themselves were also very out of the norm. Suspicious even. First, they did not seem to have a car, and second, they both looked ruffled. I know police work is supposed to be rough and one should always expect an officer in their uniform to come across as a bit worn. But those two almost looked like they had been out there in the elements as fugitives in police uniforms for quite a while. So, are they actually non-police pranksters? Middle-aged pranksters? Was this whole incident some elaborate yet harmless prank? I probably need to call the police. The real police to see if they have these two in their department. Writing all of these thoughts in my head, I half-mindedly typed the two officers' names into the search engine. Maybe their names would pop up in a digital roster or something like that from the local police website. Shockingly, their names did pop up together on the very first entry of the search results. It was no police roster though. It was not even related to the police. It was an article, a story to be more precise from a blog about occult stuff, urban legends and unresolved real life crimes. The article was published five years ago and the title read, 
Where did Officer Rainer Blythe and Officer Greg Duchamp go after the last mission? Answering an emergency call regarding a malicious crawling figure on the second floor of a residence in a wooded area. Two things simultaneously ensued that I immediately got down to reading the story and that a knot had formed in my stomach. Not just because this freak incident kept getting more ominous with more content, but also because the address of the residence in a wooded area was exactly the same as mine. Okay, I'm not transcribing the whole article here. I'll just give you a synopsis. One night about nine years ago, four years ago from the article's author's perspective, Officer Blythe and Officer Duchamp came to this address to answer an emergency call placed by the female owner of the residence. The caller named Laurie Randall stated while watching TV in her living room that she heard the clear sound of something, probably a large animal, crawling in the hallway upstairs. Upon checking, she found blood trails on these stairs leading up to the second floor. And not daring to go upstairs, she called the police for help. The officers arrived at the house and the woman was waiting for them on the porch. She looked like she was about to go into hysteria, but the police quickly calmed her down. She then told them that she was 52 living alone and had no doubt there was something very malicious and dangerous in her house and that she dared not go back inside. The officers asked Lori to stay put on the porch and enter the house by themselves. They got to the stairs and instantly saw a blood trail on them. The trail only reached halfway down the stairs, like something was originally heading downstairs but changed its mind halfway and went back up. Guns drawn, the officers then followed the trail onto the second floor, covered the entire hallway, and entered the bathroom at the end. The blood trail made them believe it must have been a predator dragging its bloody prey around, except that they failed to notice any claw print in or near the trail. Even more unnervingly, they found shapes in the trail that resembled a print of a human hand. After getting inside the bathroom, they quickly noticed the window was left wide open and that the blood trail was heading outside so maybe the crawler originally had accessed the interior through this window, and after having somehow decided not to move downstairs, climbed out through the same window. The officers shone their flashlights out the window and inspected the surface of the outside wall. To their surprise, the blood trail continued neither upward toward the roof nor downward toward the ground. Instead, it went horizontally along the surface of the wall toward the front side of the house. The whole scene was so bizarre and creepy, neither officer could come up with a plausible explanation on the spot. They decided to head down outside for further inspection. They were expecting to see Lori on the porch when they opened the front door, but there was not a soul outside. The surrounding area was pitch black, where could she have possibly gone? They called out for her, but the passing wind carried no reply, speculating that she had been taken by whatever predator or entity that was visiting the residence. The officers were on full alarm. However, before they could take any further action, 
A cold, gooey droplet landed on one of the officer's face, and a few more followed on their faces and shoulders. The officers looked at each other and saw that it was blood on their faces and shoulders. They tensed up and looked up in unison to the porch ceiling. But whatever they saw ended the story right then and there, and very likely the two officers as well. The article concluded abruptly, probably for theatrics. There was no citing of sources nor any attempt at proving the veracity of the story. Anybody else running into this article would just call it out as another lame urban legend wannabe, but not me. Not with all of these matching details, the address, the officers' names, and the content of the call. I was starting to believe there might actually have been some crawling entity in my house, but it was already very late when I finished reading the article, and I really wanted to go to bed. So I told myself to calm down and decided I was definitely going to check with the police department and also give my real estate agency a call the next day. And after that, I went to bed. Sleep did not come easily, and when it did come... It was disrupted by a sudden burst of frantic shouting outside my house. Oh God, please send help. My God, there's blood. So much blood on the stairs. I can't go back inside. Please send someone now. It was a woman. I jumped out of my bed and bolted across the bedroom floor to the window, not even putting on my slippers. I leaned close to the window to look down at my porridge. I had left the porch light on, but of course, all I could see from up there was only the roof. However, I could still hear the woman's voice, albeit not clearly. Her voice was much lower now. I failed to make out exactly what she was saying, but I thought that she was reporting her address. A short while later, everything went dead silent. What the hell? How am I supposed to process this? Adrenaline simmered down and I started to realize how exhausted I really was. I needed to go back to sleep. Maybe everything that had happened earlier had left such an imprint on my psyche that I was hallucinating the woman's voice. Sleep came once more, yet failed to last just like before. I woke up in the middle of the night again. This time, not due to any noise. One minute, I was still in a deep slumber, and the next, I was wide awake, standing on my porch, in pajamas, staring at the stark night and shivering in the cold wind. What's happening? I don't understand. Did I sleepwalk here? I felt like I was in a lucid dream, or maybe I was. I turned around and found my front door ajar. I immediately pushed it open to go back inside, but was petrified by what welcomed me in the doorway. It was a standing corpse of a middle-aged woman, glassy-eyed, ashen-skinned, with the entire throat removed, shredded and torn away. The mutilation did not stop at her neck but went all the way down to her groin. She basically had a canal dug out from her front torso, flooding the surrounding areas of her body with blood. Red droplets were dripping down her fingertips and the edges of her clothes. I was just standing there, 
frozen with fear, gawking at the emotionless face of the corpse. The stillness was finally broken by the corpse coming back to life. Trembling as if in agony, it slowly crouched and then leaned forward into a crawling position. Taking zero notice of its paralyzed observer, it rigidly turned around on all fours and crawled its way deeper into the house. Still a statue by the doorway, I watched the thing going straight to the stairs and ascending into the darkness on the second floor, leaving behind an ungodly trail of blood. Like a worming slug from hell, leaving behind a trail of crimson mucus. The next thing I knew, I was waking up in my bedroom with the morning sunlight spilling in through the window. It was a fine day, but my head was hurting and I felt anything but well rested. The realization that the woman from the previous night was just a dream, a nightmare, failed to put me at ease by any means. She was probably the house owner featured in the article that I had read the night before. Maybe my brain had gotten inspired by the article and conjured up the nightmare. Or maybe the story in the article was real and the woman was actually paying me a visit to my dream as a paranormal entity. If so, I did not know what to make of it. I took a shower, had some breakfast and called my real estate agency I already knew my house was three years old. It had replaced an older one at the exact same location and had adopted the old one's address. The former owners, a couple, had decided to sell it after having lived there for two and a half years because they'd inherited a mansion somewhere else. I, of course, had been the one that had been bought over from them, very happily. I garnered zero useful info whatever from the phone call. The agency told me straight that they did not know anything about whoever had owned the previous house, nor the previous house itself. They suggested that I talk with the local police, which was exactly what I went on to do. I first inquired about the existence of the two officers. To my surprise and horror, the department revealed those two had indeed been part of their team many years before but refused to further disclose any info regarding how they had left the police force. When I went on to tell them that I had received a visit from those two the night before, due to an alleged emergency call from my address that I had known nothing about, they confirmed the call was non-existent and decided to send someone over to investigate. Shortly afterward, another pair of officers arrived on my porch. They showed me photos of Officer Blythe and Officer Duchamp. I told them that these were indeed the same people that I had encountered. They then revealed those two had gone missing nine years before while answering an emergency call from the house at my address back then, made by the then 52-year-old homeowner, Lori Randall, about mysterious crawling sounds. When I asked about Lori, they reluctantly added that Lori had gone missing too, presumably on the same night. They then took my statement and left me their contact info before taking off. After seeing them off, I finally let the severity of the situation sink in. Those two officers were real people, or at least they had been nine years before, which meant what or whoever had paid me a visit the previous night 
had not been pranksters. Or maybe Rainer and Greg were indeed playing a prank on me. For they disappeared from the police just to play cops as former cops on innocent citizens. In addition, the owner of the old house, Lori, was or had been a real person as well. A real missing person, just like the other two. I had forgotten to ask the officers for her photo, but I did not think that I needed it. This whole thing was messed up. I got to my laptop and tried to search for local police or news reports on these missing person cases, but my search came up empty. It seemed to me that they had covered them up. I did not think it was because the authorities were somehow involved. I assumed it was because they had details on the case that could potentially upset the community. The police had merely revealed to me what they had felt comfortable to let on. Next, I tried to contact that blog from the previous night, but found out that it had not been updated for four years. There was only an email address of the blogger on the contact page, and I did not think that it would help me reach anybody. Nonetheless, I sent an email to the address and with zero expectation of getting a reply. A day passed by, with my anxiety and fear culminating as the night fell. However, though alarmed, I was still refusing to humor the idea that I was in any real danger. I am not the superstitious type and I also told myself I would immediately call the police, should anything even remotely suspicious happen. At 8pm with all the lights on, I was snuggling in my living room armchair, pretending to aimlessly scroll through all my feeds on various social media platforms, while in reality nervously paying full attention to each and every slight or imaginary thud and creak in the house. When the night hit 10pm, my usual shower and bedtime, I stood up, stretched my arms and yawned, ready to call it a day. However, underneath all this normalcy, I was fiercely praying to God no crawling bloody woman would pay me a visit in my slumber tonight, nor any creepy former policeman in real life. I shuffled to the bottom of the stairs, and my steps stopped cold. The second floor hallway was pointing over my head, like the barrel of a gun, icy and dark. The hallway lights had been turned off. I did not do that. I had deliberately turned on all the lights in my house because I was scared. Frozen with thrumming premonitions in my head, I hesitated about whether to call the police. Some of my lights were mysteriously turned off, please send help. Would this make a reasonable emergency call? But I promised myself I would call 911, even at the slightest suspicion of danger. Thankfully, my vacillation came to an end after a short moment. The menacing gun barrel of a hallway finally answered my doubt, emanating a noise I had just learned the previous night in my nightmare. The same noise the gutted woman had made when she had tried to maneuver on all fours. If the sound alone was not enough to completely freak me out, the associated visuals propping up in my head surely got the job done. Covering my mouth with my hand to stifle the scream, I darted for the front door, but remembering what had happened to Lori and the two officers on the porch, I stopped myself before turning the knob. 
I probably should have just risked it. But at that moment, I was cornered by the crawling entity, and my own concerns and was not thinking straight. So instead of leaving the house, I retreated into the living room, kneeling down behind the sofa, which was a pretty useless cover. Lifting the phone to my face and I dialed a 911. Something big is crawling in my second floor hallway. The dispatcher offered to stay on line with me, but I refused. I had to be able to hear and discern what was going on around me. I could not afford to focus on the phone. As long as the police were coming, I should be fine. A sudden creak, probably from the door on the far end of the hallway, added to the consistent crawling. The thing was entering my bathroom. Good, it's moving away from my side of the house then. But if the article from the previous night served as any reference, the thing was probably moving to the exterior of the house now, so it would be unwise for me to go outside. I then hunched my back and silently sneaked into the kitchen to hide under the large counter. I somehow thought that it was better cover. I had also grabbed a kitchen knife before crawling under. What to do now? Do I just wait here or is it really that unsafe to leave the house, get in my car, and gas it? Beads of cold perspiration started roaming my skin. I was yet again caught in indecisiveness. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a flurry of strong knocks on the front door and the shouting from a male voice pulled me out of my dithering. Please, open up. Thank God, the police are finally here. I was relieved. There's hope now. And then I remembered that I did not hear any police car approaching, and the next sentence from the knocking officer yanked me back to a worsening reality from my transient moment of hope. He said, We are Officer Blythe and Officer Duchamp, ma'am. You already know us. Please open the door. Or else we're going to have to smash it. Officer Duchamp chimed in. Both of them sounded playful, even gleeful, like how a chainsaw-wielding serial killer would sound in their game of cat and mouse with the victim. No, no, God, please don't let this be real. I was destroyed. I had to bite into my thumb so hard just to stay quiet, warm tears of desperation welling in my eyes. The loud thuds came from the front door, each one louder than the last. They were ramming the door with their bodies. An explosion of splintering wood erupted in the doorway with the sound of a human body hitting the ground. Both of them giggled like a pair of teenage boys at a stupid, obscene joke and one of them was getting up from the ground. I was sobbing by trying hard to hold back sobbing, but they seemed to have not taken any notice. Oh, Greg, can you hear that? I think Glory's still up there in the bathroom. Yeah, that dummy doesn't know how to open a window without smashing it. And they snickered. How about let's go help her out, and we'll sweep the first floor later. It's your call, boss. And then I heard footsteps ascending the staircase. I wasn't even trying to analyze the situation anymore. What would be the use anyway? The only thing I knew was that they had left me alone on the first floor, that Lori was still inside of the house and that the front door was already shattered, so I would be able to walk through it without it creaking. 
I hastily tiptoed to the door and dashed for my car. However, once at the car, I remembered my key was still lying on the nightstand in my bedroom. Stupid habit of not having my car key in my person at all times. I'm an idiot. It would be stupid to double back and go upstairs. Time was of vital importance and I could not afford to freeze again. And so I steered myself into the woods. That patch of the woods serves as a shortcut to a gas station not too far away. It was dark, but I believed that I could make it quite easily. I would only need to spend 10 minutes in the woods and I would be in the company of other humans again. Once inside, I inevitably slowed down even though I had my cell phone flashlight on. There was no path in the woods, just untrodden wilderness. I also had to constantly turn back and observe the surroundings to see if anybody was following me. I got away a little too easily. Or am I just too scared to feel safe again? The 10 minute walk felt like a 10 year march, and I felt like I was trudging in a dark tunnel, insulated from any hope and warmth. However, with each tunnel comes the light at the end. After a decade, I finally caught a glimpse of the distant gas station lights. My instincts told me to scream, to let my voice traveling at the speed of sound reached the haven first so I could at least get a vicarious taste of security and hope when suddenly a wet drop landed on the tip of my nose. It smelled like decaying blood. More drops followed. Before it dawned on me of what was going on, I subconsciously looked up toward the forest canopy. And that is the last thing I remember from yesterday. Right now, I am lying on a patch of grass deeper in the woods. I may not remember exactly how everything ended yesterday, but I still remember all the pain toward the end. That is not important now though. Now, I am not feeling any pain, nor any comfort either. What I am feeling, lying here with my throat, my ribcage, and my stomach torn open, is a primordial hunger a yearning animal inside me, and a presence not far away. The presence of some young people, teenagers wandering, exploring nearby, and probably in search of some harmless juvenile thrill in the darkening woods. The time on my cell phone says that it is dusk outside the woods. Their life energy, delicate yet vibrant, is threading through these shrubs and thickets like a school of fish, luring me into action. I have to put my phone down now, for I have to go satiate my hunger. I do wish that I could keep updating you guys on my new life, but I am afraid very soon the animal inside will take over and leave me but a tiny fragment of my human intelligence. Probably right after this first hunt, I am about to embark on I wonder who will become the next owner of my house, and if my new friends, you know who I'm referring to, will eventually come looking for me. I'm an urban explorer. My first bunker dive might be my last. Written by Zindris. Ever since I discovered this hobby, I had visited every abandoned place my city had to offer. 
factories, schools, warehouses, each one stuck in a moment of undisturbed nostalgia, but never bunkers. They were completely out of my area of expertise, deemed dangerous and made inaccessible within my area. This is why I had to step out of my comfort zone. I had scheduled a meeting with three guys in a metro station in Russia. They called it a quick dive. Go in, learn a little about the place as we walk, see everything there is to see, and then get out. No harm done. No one gets in trouble. However, when the time came for us to meet, I found out only one of the three spoke English at the level where we could hold a conversation. He was an odd guy who stood out with his scarred cheek. To add to the intimidating factor, he also had a thick accent, but the message it got across, specifically that he was the guide who would show us to the bunker. Grigory, he reached out for a handshake. Follow rule or go home, okay? I nodded. There were the rules, and then there was the plan. Well, it was pretty much just helping each other. The bunker had a specific list that he would go into detail later. After that, the other two came forward to shake hands as well. A blonde guy named Misha, and a tall one named Kolya. Everyone's backpack seemed well prepared, so there wasn't any issue regarding that. As for our introductions, we kept everything short, prioritizing Grigory's plan with the idea of bonding along the way. Wait for train. Empty. He gestured at the people around himself, and then pointed towards the tunnel as he continued speaking. Sensor, I go first, okay? I know how not start alarm. Walk, door one. No, door two. He gave a thumbs up, which he also used to point at the ceiling. Vent. Got it, I responded. From what I understood, the plan was to wait for the metro train to clear the platform, mainly to avoid any inquiring eyes. Then, we would walk along the rails, sticking to the wall until we passed one worker gate and met the second. Above it would be a ventilation duct that connected to the bunker. It seemed to be the only way. And most importantly, Grigory knew the sensor blind spots, so we were only allowed to step where he did. Five minutes in and the train slid to a stop on the rails, screeching back into the darkness of the tunnel not long after. Being the only people left on the platform, the four of us quickly descended and trailed behind the train in a half sprint, flashlights in our hands, for another ten minutes. Everything happened exactly as planned. However, seeing the so-called ventilation duct, I would lie if I said I wasn't feeling a little bit apprehensive. It looked to be just a little more than a tight fit, yet that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was the sharp turn of the duct, right above the opening. It took a low curse from Misha for Grigory to realize what had crossed our minds, so at least we didn't have to discuss who went first. Without another word on our part, Grigory bit into the body of his flashlight and climbed the iron gate, throwing his backpack into the opening while we lit his way. As he squeezed in as well, 
The duct vibrated a low hum, and only after half his body followed into the ventilation duct did he speak. See this? It goes right, head first, arms raised, okay? Grigory narrated his actions, switching between Russian and English. Go in, rotate right shoulder up, push. No worry, you get stuck, I pull you out. He spoke in a matter of fact and did everything with confidence. It was obvious that he had done this before. Having someone reliable was relieving, and it was as if all my worries had vanished at that moment. Come, he ushered twice. The three of us looked at each other. Kolya followed suit in climbing the gate without confirming with us first, and I quickly volunteered as he did. Having someone behind to pull me out rather than further in by going last sounded much better. I climbed the gate as well and did as Grigory instructed, holding my arms above my head. Over my backpack, I could spot Kolya wiping the dusty insides with his behind, and once I was in, I was in no different. The duck shook it at my every movement and sent dust flying into my nostrils, teaching me how useful a mask would have been. Fortunately, the unpleasantness was short-lived, as I saw the exit shortly thereafter. The first thing that hit me was the stale smell with hints of burnt. The second, the view. There were flower bouquets by the ventilation duct, and not just a few. I also noticed crates that had been dug through, most of them blackened by an odd pattern. Fire, Grigory said his accent very noticeable. Everything burn. 1952. 40 death. 40? I asked incredulous. Such a number came as a surprise. Were there any survivors? Grigory shook his head. Zero. Quiet. Afterwards, he took the lead once more, introducing the rules of the bunker. No loud talk. Only quiet talk, okay? His eyes met mine, and I nodded to confirm that I understood. And then he continued, using another look to ask for confirmation. No touch, only look. Finally, just before listing the final rule, he made sure everyone was listening. One souvenir each, okay? No two, no zero. One. We chuckled at his insistence to take some memories back with us, but didn't think twice. Following this, we strolled around the place, passing by multiple things that hinted at what this place might have been used for. As for what, I couldn't figure out. Grigory filled in. Crates with cushions of straws made up most of the depository, with gas masks at ready in every room. New pairs of old-fashioned shoes and simple iron tools were also a frequent find, but they were nowhere near the abundancy of Morse telegraphs and radios connected to bulky headphones. Information, Grigory pointed out, bringing the equipment to our attention. I figured as much. Still, unsure of the whole picture, I asked. What kind of information? Anything. Enemy number, enemy weapon, tank, you know. Grigory continued. I nodded along. Grigory's voice replaying in my head. 
It was a completely different experience having this piece of history before me than having it recounted. I wanted to find out more, what they felt like, what they sounded like. While everyone lit the area ahead of us, I stepped out of the group and took a seat beside the radio. The wooden chair creaked under my weight, and immediately, everyone's flashlights pointed to my location. And just knowing some important figure who had a say in the war had a seat on this chair, and relied on the equipment within my reach was an incredible feeling. Sadly, I was discovered before I could probe the radio, so I could only return a pleading look to Grigory. Well, suffice to say, Grigory did not share my joy. No touch, he scolded. You want chair souvenir? I swallowed a laugh at the unintended humor, replying honestly. Sorry, my bad. Touch souvenir only. My little stunt affected him somehow, because after that he seemed distressed. The frown wouldn't leave his brows. And not only that, just the way that he looked around made me feel uneasy. He also kept a closer eye on us. Soon, we arrived by a room that didn't fit with the other's theme. Spots of many hues of red stuck to the concrete. Wooden contraptions that I couldn't put a name to similarly stained. Everything in this room screamed torture and carried a different weight to it. Torture chamber for spy and thief. See? Grigory pointed at a lighter stain. Took three souvenir. Kolya and Misha laughed at the absurdity of his words. The joke came out of nowhere, so of course I laughed as well. Grigory, however, didn't seem in the mood. In fact, I hadn't seen him smile the entire trip. One each, he repeated. His stern expression then looked us down, and with our confirmation came confusion. Yeah, but why? I asked. The other two understood what was going on and focused on the conversation as well. In turn, Grigory clicked his tongue. His only response was to point around the torture room, some Russian words aiding his explanation. It was obvious that the other two weren't buying it. They either raised an eyebrow or chuckled at whatever he had to say. As for me, he only had two words to share. One each. He was definitely frustrated that he couldn't put his worries into words, whatever they were. Being my first bunker, I wasn't planning on being too rebellious. But I can't deny it would have helped knowing more about the situation. Perhaps to shoulder a little of the burden because Grigory looked far from well. Okay, done, he stated. Take souvenir, one each. The end came much too sudden. The place wasn't big, but definitely it had a lot of pigs. On our way back, Misha chose a gas mask, while Kolya picked a simple knife from an open crate. It was a hard choice for me, but in the end, I took one of the Morris telegraphs. Though surprisingly, I didn't see Grigory take anything. He spent the entire time carefully monitoring us. Still, back at the ventilation duct room, it came as a surprise to see him block the ventilation duct. Open, Grigory ordered, pointing at my backpack. 
I looked at Misha and Kolya, who were just as confused, but more than that, fidgety. I didn't see the point in starting an argument, so I went along with Grigory's demand, dropping my backpack on the concrete and unzipping it to reveal its contents. Grigory pointed his flashlight inside and nodded after a quick look, stepping to the side to let me enter the ventilation. I agreed to go first, exchanging a look with the three. I could feel the conflict that was about to erupt, and I hoped the silent plea in my eyes would have helped somehow, since I had no words that could have diffused the situation. I remember pushing my backpack in first while biting onto my flashlight and puffing dust, using my palms to push myself along. Not long after, my flashlight started acting up, and when it lost power altogether, I could no longer tell left from right. When I finally came to, it felt as if a single second had passed, but it was enough to turn the neutral situation horrifying. I was seeing the torture room from a seated angle, while leather belts dug into my flesh. My everything from head to toe was bound, and then I saw them behind a glass pane, in full view of the flashlight by my feet. A group of corpses in military uniforms Charred skins, glowing like magma, and clouded eyes inspecting me. Grigory, I shouted. Shh, quiet. No worry, he quietly answered, as if to comfort me. How the heck can I not worry? Dude, are you seeing this? Where are Misha and Kolya? I responded. No, late. Misha, Kolya, thief. No worry. Quiet. Trust Grigory. You good, no worry. Close eye, no worry. He continued, almost in a whisper, and he wouldn't stop repeating it. He kept repeating the same thing until I finally calmed down the slightest bit. He wouldn't have told me what to do for no reason. So, I decided to trust him despite my feelings of being wronged. I wanted to scream, demand who my captors were, what they wanted, but Grigory seemed to know what was best. I heard a door slam, and then I heard steps. I did as Grigory advised, and I closed my eyes, but not knowing what was coming and when made it much worse. My skin turned cold. I was shivering, yet the steps wouldn't stop drawing closer. I was moments away from hyperventilating when they finally passed by me, leaving an intense smell of rot and death in their wake. And right before they stopped... Misha screamed. He cursed and called for Grigory, but no answer came, so Kolya responded instead, panic unmistakable in his voice. And then they called my name. My lips parted, yet I couldn't utter a single word. Since Grigory didn't do it, I didn't do it. He asked me to trust him. This trust and reliance were everything I had in the situation. Despite our unwillingness to talk, Misha had already heard us. He knew we were there, and when a crunch resounded and his screams turned to pain, his voice became filled with hatred. He called our names, frustrated and angry that we weren't sharing his suffering. I was sure that was the reason. I finally understood what Grigory meant by calling them thieves. The stains of blood inside the torture room. Grigory knew everything. 
I needed answers, but I was in no position to ask. A metallic clank warned me from behind not to let my tongue loose. Kolya also caught onto something and tried to follow our example, becoming quiet and ignoring Misha. And Misha realized he had been singled out, and he knew that he couldn't rely on us anymore. The metallic clanks became louder and louder and a tease of what was coming next. He no longer had the time to curse us. His tone, he begged, cried, asked for mercy from whatever was hurting him, though it didn't seem to work. As his voice raised in panic, he screamed once more in fear. And when the metallic clank sounded again, another time in pain, I could feel the scream vibrate my guts. I'm sure the others felt it to some degree as well, but no one dared break the silence. I was certain at that moment that Misha would die, yet I only thought of Kolya. The false feeling of safety he must have felt at that moment, knowing he would be second was a painful guilt. It was worse than Misha's fate. He would witness his treatment firsthand while hoping otherwise, only to be proven wrong as he goes through perhaps the same torture step by step. From that point, Misha's screams could only lose strength. His lungs had already been abused beyond their ability. A hollow strike turned his labored breast into gargles, and spitting might have been what brought his salvation a quick end. Another strike followed, louder and then another, until the only strikes were the drops of liquid on the concrete a suffocating silence pausing in between. I shed a tear. Gregory whimpered. Kolya sniffled. And the creature had walked again, going further behind me. It was finally Kolya's turn. His cries contained no trace of fear but only regret. He asked things of Gregory, crying betrayal at every clank. He blamed him for every strike and shred of pain all the way to his death. He blamed him not in anger, but betrayal. And by the time Kolya took his last breath, Grigory could no longer hold back from crying. I couldn't either. The creature stepped, this time towards me. It stopped in front of me and my heart slowed, hoping I would turn invisible. I could feel its intimidating presence. I could smell it. The stale current it cast with its movements brushing against me. The same current I felt before its rotten, bony hand struck my cheek with all of its strength, almost knocking down the chair that I was bound to. Exposed bone left on my face, a cut oozing blood, and a pulsating sensation that turned the world around me. Yet I still didn't dare open my eyes. My cries were stuck in my throat, and while I braced myself for another strike, it had actually turned and laughed and headed for Grigory. I was alive. It had spared me. I was expecting it to hurt Grigory in some way as well, but I heard nothing else after it stopped moving. It stood somewhere near Grigory, watching him, only for moments later to sigh a deathly whistle that echoed by my ears and disappeared into the walls. The leather belts vanished as if they had never been there in the first place, sending me to my knees. I couldn't feel those things staring at me anymore. My stuffed breasts brushed out by themselves. Grigory's cries clearer than ever after drying myself of adrenaline. 
I dreaded the idea of turning, seeing the bodies of Misha and Kolya. I had witnessed their deaths and I was afraid of seeing what became of them. But that was just delaying the inevitable. And despite my shaken state, I still let my hands wander the concrete, first finding my backpack. And then I picked the flashlight by my chair and lit Grigory's face. His still closed eyes, one of which was purple, and the scarred cheek that matched mine. In the corner of my light, I saw the pool of blood where Kolya should have been. The wooden chair still sucked on every drop that it caught, while its legs bathed in the crimson liquid. But there was no Kolya. My light slowly slid across the wall to Misha's chair, and I found out it was no different there. Grigory, I cried. Receiving no response, I called his name again, bringing the light to his face. In turn, he only gently shook his head. The walls felt like pairs of eyes watching my every movement now. I dreaded standing up, even taking a single step in fear of doing something that I shouldn't, but still sought the comfort of Grigory's presence. Grigory wasn't afraid. Rather, he regretted the situation. After an effort to arrive by his side, I placed a hand on his shoulder and let him pick himself up. He grabbed the flashlight by his feet and slowly walked along with me, silently crying. As we crossed the equipment-filled room, I reached in my backpack and retrieved the Morris telegraph, trying to return it. No, take nothing. Spy take two. Thief, he warned. Again, my heart climbed my throat. I was stuck with a cursed souvenir, unable to dispose of it. I feared even asking if I could rid myself of it after leaving, convinced that the walls were listening. Everything about the bunker felt claustrophobic now. Won't we get in trouble? Two people died here. We've already been seen together. We can't explain this, I realized. No. He didn't go into detail, but stopped me by the ventilation duct where the flower bouquet is laid. There, he crouched beside one and picked its card. 1920 to 1952. I didn't get where he was going with this until he read the name. Kolya. And then he reached for another. Misha. Kolya. Misha. No remember. No exist. No trouble. I felt sick. These bouquets. Such a disgusting gesture. The guilt in his voice was genuine. But I didn't understand the drive to bring people to their deaths. Why bring us here? He picked a third card and read it aloud before showing it crossed out Russian contents to me. 1920. Grigory. I was taken aback by hearing his name, but no amount of shock could have prepared me for the fourth card, nor for his voice reading my name. I felt Misha's anger manifold, and a betrayal similar to what Kolya must have felt. 1920. Edgar. Sorry. I lost my family in a house fire. While fighting the wildfires in California, I saw them again. Written by 
Peter Vox at 19. I've been a firefighter for 18 years now, and I've seen some pretty messed up stuff. Children who didn't make it out of an orphanage in time. Or the puppies in an animal shelter with faulty wiring in its walls. But nothing compares to what I witnessed this last year while fighting the wildfires in California. When I was a kid, I suffered from pretty extreme sleepwalking. Some nights, I would wake up in the bathtub. Other nights, I might wake up in the garage. That being said, it wasn't an every night thing. It happened maybe twice a week, and typically, it was no worse than me waking up in my parents' bed, unable to remember how I got there. But there were certainly times at which my spooky tendency instilled fear in both my family and I. Now, with that out of the way, what I'm about to explain to you will make a lot more sense. My grandparents had driven down to our Californian suburb to stay with us for the holidays and were sleeping on the futon in the living room. My brother and sister were sound asleep in their respective rooms as our dog laid at the foot of my parents' bed, soaking up the warmth of their feet. Meanwhile, I was getting out of bed and making my way to the front door. When my eyes opened, I was greeted with the red-hot glow of hellfire that had, at this point, completely engulfed my home. The sirens blared from down the street. Petrified in absolute horror, a five-year-old me collapsed to his knees as my grandfather stumbled out of the front door like a stuntman doing a flame performance. However, my grandfather was no stuntman, and he was certainly not wearing a fire-retardant suit. He was burning alive right in front of my eyes. However, he would not struggle for much longer, because he almost immediately fell to the ground motionless, still blazing like he had been bathed in gasoline. The fire engines and ambulances pulled up behind me moments later, but at that point, it was far too late. My family had already been reduced to charred versions of themselves inside the blue suburban home. I laid in the dead winter grass, crying in the fetal position as EMTs attempted to get me into an ambulance. My whole family left the property in body bags that night while I sat in a hospital bed without a speck of soot on my body. 
Even at that age, I felt a level of guilt that dragged me into the darkest pits of depression. They never did find out what had started the fire. I went in and out of foster homes until I turned 18. Post-secondary education mattered little to me. I had known what I wanted to do with my life since that very Christmas Eve. Two years after I graduated high school, I successfully finished Fire Academy. My purpose in life had been achieved, and even now, I don't regret it. But the night that I saw them did make me question if being a firefighter was worth it. The date was August 15th, 2020. Some other firefighters and I were working on forming control lines on the outside of a wooded area northeast of Sacramento. We were closing in on the thick tree line when the fire began to separate me from the rest of my unit. I had gotten too close and somehow found myself in between the burning trunks of dozens of pine trees. The blaze jumped from treetop to treetop like a scorching primate, tossing the scorching embers on the ground behind me, birthing an entirely new wall of flames. I was completely enclosed within the inferno. Smoke strangled me. Unable to breathe, I fell to the ground. The scene mirroring a young me crying on the front lawn in the fetal position. However, now I was six foot tall, a 35-year-old man, about to meet the same fate my family did so many years ago. My sleepwalking had saved my life the first time, but I wouldn't be so lucky this time around. Suddenly, my lungs emptied. I could breathe clearly, as if I was sitting at home and not lying on the ground choking to death inside the ravaging wildfire. I should have been unconscious at this point, but the thick smoke suddenly ceased filling my lungs. My tears subsided, and while the choking had dissipated, the incredible blast of heat coming from the inferno 15 feet away had not. I forced my burning body onto two feet, and as I stood up, a figure formed within the flames. It was small, no taller than knee-high. An unmistakable whimper came from the fiery version of my dog, Jesse. Jesse's life had come to an end the same way my family had. Even though she was just an Australian shepherd, I still thought about her every night like the rest of them. It's been a long time, kid. It had been 35 years, but the voice of my father remained the same. 
stoly, with black skeletal frames, white hot eyes, and flaming yellowish orange skin. The figure of my father and eventually the rest of my family began to form behind Jessie in the wall of fire surrounding me as she let out another whimper. We've missed you so much, dear. My mom's voice spoke, dripping with pain and sorrow. I haven't had anyone to play with down here. A more youthful voice spoke this time, and I instantly recognized it as Adam, my once seven-year-old brother. I, I don't know what to say. The words barely dribbled out of my mouth, as a combination of fear and grief and guilt swept over my entire body. Oh, kiddo, we know it's been hard up here too. The raspy voice of my now 118-year-old grandmother attempted to console me, but the guilt invading my heart continued to persist. Hard? It hasn't been hard for him. We've been burning for the past 35 years. I instantly recognized the sassy voice of my 13-year-old sister, Tammy. Tammy, you watch your mouth. My mother scolded. I stared at them as they stared back, waiting for me to say something. The looks in their pearly white eyes ranged from empathy to literal burning hatred. I I'm sorry I couldn't help you. I was asleep. I sleepwalked out of the house. Please, you've got to believe me. Oh, bullshit. My grandfather's angry voice shot an accusatory exclamation in my direction. Oh, shut up, you cranky old hag. My father's voice boomed back towards my furious granddad. You honestly believe that this embarrassment actually walked out of the house in his damn sleep? What kind of bogus garbage is that? My grandpa and I had not been close, but I didn't remember him having these feelings of spite towards me. Grandpa's right. Peter left us to burn alive, and we did. It's all his fault. My tantrum-throwing sister added in. I would have tried if I could. Why don't you believe me? I pleaded with my sister and grandfather for forgiveness as tears rushed down my soot-covered face, revealing my pale skin underneath as Jessie whined once more. Tilting her head to the right, just slightly. Oh, sweetie, it's okay. You're here now. That's all that matters. My grandmother's sweet voice, yet again, tried to persuade me that I hadn't done anything wrong. But my grandpa's accusatory tone overpowered her attempt at relief. That's absolutely right. You're here now, honey. We can be together again, just like old times. 
My mom smiled, a wide, toothless smile. Yeah, bro, come with us. It's always warm down here. It's like summer vacation, every day. Adam's voice echoed through the dancing flames. I gasped for air as I wiped away the tears. Where is down there, Adam? I asked, voice shaking. Hmm. His flaming figure raised a hand to his chin, showing that he was pondering this hard. Well, I can't spoil the surprise, but trust me, after all, I'm your brother, right Pete? The way that he said this caused alarms to go off all across my brain. No, no you're not my brother. My brother is dead, and so is my sister, and so are all of you. You are not real. I grew more and more passionate as the words came out of my mouth. I love my family more than anything in the world, and I know they wouldn't pressure me to die for them. So you're all liars. Now let me die in peace, please. I begged them all. You watch your tongue, young man. My father now directed his anger towards me. I sat in a hospital bed, spewing crap and blood, just to pop your sorry ass into this world. God, I wish I hadn't. With this attack, my heart sank. I knew this wasn't my mother. Not really. But despite that... It still stung more than any other insult I had ever received. Come with us. Come with us. Come with us. The voices of my family echoed in unison. As the walls of fire grew ever closer, their faces now expressionless. Something began shifting under their feet, and out of nowhere... A fiery hand erupted from the scorched earth, and another, and another. One after another, the flaming hands of my family members burst through the soft black soil and wrapped their incinerating fingers around my ankles. Down, down, down. I felt myself sinking into the ground as the fingers burned through my fire-retardant pants and gripped my legs tightly. Please, please, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so. But before I could finish my final, futile apology, my head sunk beneath the dirt, and everything went black. When I woke up, it was Christmas morning, 1985. I sprinted out of my bedroom and down the stairs to the large tree that stood in the corner of the living room. My entire family sat around the tree on the floor with legs crossed, staring up at the pine tree. The only one missing from the ring forming around the tree was my grandpa. I heard the front door open and I spun around. The flaming body of my grandfather fell forward through the door and plopped to the floor. The wall surrounding his blazing body instantly went up in flames erupting the house into a gigantic ball of fire. I spun back around to see that the other members of my family had turned into the charred renditions of their corpses, 
still sitting with their legs crossed. Everything went black again. Hey, pal, uh, how you holding up? A man's voice asked from above me. Huh? Grandpa, Dad? Ma, heck no. It's Gary. My best friend was looking down at me, smiling ear to ear. Holy crap, are you lucky to be alive, man. When they pulled you out of there, you were out cold. The doc thought for sure that you weren't going to make it. Check it out, though. You got some pretty sweet scars to show off to the chicks. Gary, still smiling wide, pointed towards my lower leg. The gown that I was wearing left my entire leg visible. This made it incredibly easy to see the hand-shaped burn marks running up and down my calves.